0: Hello and welcome to episode 103 of GM Party. We are here with Jeff Stormer in Cape and Kate Bui. And well, I'm not sure if I 100% pronounced that correctly. that's no, right. Beautiful. Uh, we're talking about uh, randomization and world building, especially as pertains to uh, tabletop RPGs um we'll start with introductions i'll i'll go first um i'm annie burdan i do uh, video game development f- professionally uh, and in the last couple of years i've been um, uh, branching into tabletop role playing games my original first true love uh, and uh, um, a lot of the uh, game types that appeal to me are story building heavy Uh, uh, story games that uh, uh, involve a lot of uh, player-controlled creation. Um, Kate, why don't you go next?
1: Sure. I'm Kate Bowie. Um, In the regular world, I work in software, but uh, my love is storytelling and games. And uh, I'm pretty active in the Seattle story games and narrative games community. uh, And I co-coordinate The um, RPG workshop that we have here that uh, helps designers like test and uh, design new games. Um, And I'm working on a couple games on my own uh, Kaiju Kiss, a kaiju dating game, and a bunch of like deeply introspective games about being sad. Um, You can find me at Army of Meat on Twitter.
2: Jeff. Hey, uh, I'm Jeff Stormer. I am a podcaster, a game designer a million other things. I have a lot of hobbies and not a lot of free time. Uh, I am the host of Party of One, which is an actual play about two-player role-playing games. Uh, every week we sit down with guests one-on-one and play through a short self-contained RPG session. You can find that at partyofonepodcast.com. I'm also the host of All My Fantasy Children, which is a character creation, storytelling, and world-building tabletop podcast where every week we take a prompt submitted from a listener. And we use some d d tables, some various story games, different... Inspiration sources, and we spin them into a fantasy character. And you can find that at allmyfantasychildren.com.
0: That that sounds particularly relevant. It does. So let's let's uh, start with that topic then. Uh, so you mentioned having uh, having a user submitted prompt, mm-hmm. uh, having a key prompt uh, to launch off the world building. Really. Uh, uh really helps focusing mm-hmm. that uh that topic discussion
2: yeah 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 it is it's always the kind of anchor that we go back to on the show it is you know we have to make sure that we it gives us something that we can look back to if we don't know quite where we're going and that's kind of i think the core of what made me really passionate about kind of the topic of like randomization was that that idea that like Taking a point of inspiration, whether it is a question or a listener prompt or a table result or something and saying, okay, here's what I have and building something out of that, which in its own way kind of felt like all of role-playing games in this kind of beautiful little cluster. Go right.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I think prompts are great for, uh, inspiring focus creativity, um, Often in a lot of games where uh, there's a little bit too much freeform uh, world building, people get analysis paralysis or or they mm-hmm. get kind of like stuck with too many potential options. They're like, well, what if the city's underwater or in the sky or giant dinosaurs or whatever? Um, like a and- blank
0: page problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right.
0: Beautiful. The, uh, one of the, the games I'm working on is about... Uh, pitching a video game to the rest of the players, uh, and in early prototypes, it was very much a uh, too much, too much to choose from. Like there are so many concepts that you can deal with. Like how do you narrow that down? And giving the players the tools to narrow that down really helped focus the core concept of the game.
2: I, I'll go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, it's always an interesting balance to strike between Mm -hmm. um, giving them enough scaffolding that they feel secure, but also uh, giving them plenty of room to kind of ignore the scaffolding if necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I know there are a lot of people out there that if you give them a large pick list of things to go from, they'll just sit there and try to analyze Mm -hmm. all of them. And then, you know, which one is the optimal choice? Um, And so, you know, it's super delicate and like i've struggled with that in some of my own games where it's like do i give them a very limited set of world building possibilities but choose random things within that or do i let them specify a larger set but then also like h- how do they interact with that reduced um choice set without mm-hmm. like overloading their brains right
2: yeah, I, I had a similar experience to you, Andy, about uh, the game that I'm working on right now. It's a game about like a super spy debriefing session after the fact, and the part of the way it works is I is everybody gets to submit their own little like idea of something that happened, and they write it on an index card, and nobody else gets to see it except them and the GM. And at first, it was just say something that happened. It can be anything at all, and that like the part of the game where players had to brainstorm that took. 20 minutes but once I kind of narrowed it down into like you're going to give me a piece of information about this and you're going to give me a piece of information about that and I narrowed it into like more of a prompt of this is what I'm looking for you know go wild within these constraints it, it it quickly speeds up because then players can say okay cool this is what I'm trying to go for oh but what if it's this this and this and then I get amazing creative ideas right the uh, uh,
0: so how would you um, what are some techniques that you might think of that uh can mitigate that uh, the that thing that Kate mentioned where a player might really dig into those tables and try and nitpick all the little details? Like, do you limit the choices that they can pick from the tables? or make them roll a die to choose from the table uh does anybody have any other ideas
1: i just built a game uh, kind of about that uh where um it's kind of a three blind men and an elephant type situation mm-hmm. where they have to describe an object using one of your senses but nobody knows what the object is until everyone's done um and i like i have a big pick list um but In order to narrow that down, I use this sort of fiasco dice pool uh, mechanic where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe there are like 36 options, but the dice say that you can only really pick from about 10 of them. Mm. So that's far less to worry about. And you only have to, like, once you narrow it down to a category, then you only have to worry about five or six. So
2: i i love rolling on dice i it's it's fun it's fun to take a thing and to roll it and like and so i just love rolling on like random table results it's just the most fun and and there's something about like there's a certain magic in rolling a dice looking at a result looking at a table and saying okay i have to use this how do i use this like That momentary, like, there's that moment of paralysis of, like, I don't know how to use this. But then there's that that moment of, like, oh, I get it. I see how it clicks together. That is one of my absolute favorite moments in game design, running games, writing things. It's just,
1: I love it so much. It's, um, there's, there's a, again, there's a certain balance, like, giving people one thing to Mm -hmm. kind of roll with. Uh, that's great that that like launches them into things but then if you give them more sort of points that you have to triangulate from then they kind of get stuck and Mm -hmm. so like too many random tables can be way worse than having no random tables for sure
2: for sure and it can be a thing where like it's kind i i've definitely seen been in, in in situations where it's like okay i gotta roll on all these things and then at the end of it you're like well this is a mountain of data I can, I can, this is a worksheet that I can look at, but like, there, but it's my favorite thing is when you roll on a single table and it gives you a piece of information and then you kind of get the option to look at other things and go, you yeah, know, I don't need this. Or if I'm really stuck, I can go, okay, I'm going to keep the digging or I'm good. And this is the, this is the the thing that pushes me to be inspired and to make magic happen.
0: Right. So one one of the things that I I tend to like to do is I build options that dovetail in like orthogonal fashions. So you have elements that are completely independent. Then you have, um, by having simple lists, uh, you don't have a whole lot of complexity and you can limit those numbers of options. But when you combine that, then you get that combinatoric complexity. The issue that can happen there is that even though you have like 13,000 whatever combinations, um, people are like, oh, I already got this one this one axis, I already chose the evil axis. so I don't want to be evil again, even though the it's the particular combination that is sort of the differentiating factor. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think um, part of designing any sort of randomization system is just allowing for mulligans. Uh, <laughs> you got to just let people be able to be like, mm, no I let's let's do something else.
2: So sometimes sometimes you gotta re-roll. Sometimes you just look at a result and you go, no, that does not, that that doesn't work. There's actually, um, it was a thing for a long, like, we did, we, we on the, on my fantasy children, we made it a big thing where we were never going to re-roll. Like, we were like, no, they're gonna roll with this. But then at some point, you just, you know, a result comes up that just makes you go, this, this undermines everything else, every other result we've come up with. Like, this undermines the story and the game, so let's just not take this like we don't have to, we're not beholden to the table result and emphasizing that i think is really important
1: at the end of the day it's all about like whatever is most interesting for the players to engage with mm-hmm. and like at, at, if you're entertaining if you're doing a performance that's one thing but like um if you're just building a game it's like some things that might be interesting kind of intellectually are not things that are particularly compelling for a, a certain player to play. So um, giving them the opportunity to uh, kind of like swerve away from that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I approached uh, in another game that I made is uh, I kind of stole the idea from um, Carolyn Hobbs's Downfall, um, where I built a game. Pool of traits um, for the world that you can then pick and choose from, like which ones that the group as a whole is interested in. Um, even though you know they're all present, you can you can choose to accentuate certain ones or mm-hmm. de-emphasize others that you find less compelling. So you can add randomization, but also still leave a certain amount of like um, user control over the narrative. <laughs>
2: And I think there's a there's a safety aspect there as well, right? Like there's just some things that will make people uncomfortable, you know. And then having the you know having that emphasis and freedom to say like you're not you are in no way beholden to this, you know, it's your story more than the more than the game story is. I think really valuable. Absolutely.
0: So, um, would you build in mechanics that uh, have that, or would you approach that simply in terms of safety tools? X card and those kinds of, uh, various tools.
1: Uh, uh, I, go ahead. I think it's a combination of the both, right? Like you need to set the player's expectations at the beginning with regards to safety, but also like building in the mechanics that allow you to, um, to choose the, the story that's most interesting for your players to explore, um, is, is important because like, nobody wants to get stuck with just like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'm playing a bugbear bard or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know or want to do that, but that's fine. Um, but one thing that I actually want to posit this as a as a as maybe an idea to float out there, um, randomization for each individual player may be not necessarily related to uh, a truly random dice, like by having other players suggest elements, um, those are things that you as a player would not come up with yourself, but then Mm -hmm. you have to weave them in. So like you don't actually need a a random number generator in order Mm -hmm. to have a random uh, experience as a player or a world builder.
0: Well, that's that's interesting. Uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of my game designs are improv inspired, mm-hmm. uh, especially considering um, like one one of my early uh, sort of design in, uh, inspirations was uh, "Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen," uh, which is Thank basically game. like you throw wrenches at other people's mm-hmm. stories and you roll with it and you're you're totally right it it does feel like a totally random thing but there are zero dice in the
1: game mm-hmm. and i would i would posit that actually for the other players at the table that's a little bit more of a satisfying mm-hmm. um And when someone takes something that you threw out and then weaves it with their own thing, and then it becomes a space that you both can play in that is unexpected and new. It it reminds
2: me a lot of like the the leading questions in Dungeon World, right? The idea that like I'm going to ask you a question and it's going to have a little bit of my a little bit of what I want of the world in it. I'm going to throw it out to you. You're going to respond, and together we have sort of built this thing that is better than the sum of its parts right and that's sort of it's just it's it i agree it is a beautiful experience that like we you know it makes it so that no one person takes ownership of a thing it is really everyone's thing
0: absolutely the um that reminds me of my next game uh my uh my i guess second quarter title um is uh basically designed around a rock band well, musical band. Uh, But they're supposed to be terrible people. And in a band that only barely works together. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the questions are definitely leading questions that are designed to build dysfunctional, broken relationships within the band. because that's the story I want to tell. I want to mm-hmm. build out Spinal Tap uh, and have the experience of uh, the experience of the actors performing in the movie Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. I want the <laughs> players to have that experience. Uh, so the like those leading questions, I never thought of them as randomization. I always thought like, well, mic drop doesn't have any kind of randomization, it's all on the players. That's an interesting thought. I'm going to have to think about that. (laughs) Um,
1: So I regularly play uh, with uh, Narrative Games Northwest uh, up here in Seattle. And it's, you know, we always play like one-shot GM-less games for the most part. And it's a rotating cast of people with all different perspectives and like, all different play styles. And so you never know what you're going to get. So it's basically random. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're playing exactly the same game of fiasco with the same play set with the similar dice rolls, like everyone is going to approach it and bring their own weird things to the table that like will drastically shift the narrative. And so um, that's the perspective that I come from where like your players are a much better source of that um that like wildness uh mm-hmm. where like dice are fun and it definitely gives you inspiration when you uh like have to let's say describe something that hasn't been done before uh or that other players have no input on but like getting in there and like bouncing off of one another um it- is super compelling and That's- it's it's it's
2: like when you, when when you really look at it like that it's like that's role playing as a whole right it's that we're mm-hmm. all going to bring a thing we're all going to bring one piece of the puzzle and we don't know what the other pieces are and that's going to come together into something much much cooler and that's I really like role playing games is the Yeah
1: the
0: rad Yeah it's well, it's it's really that that old statement right that the the uh product is greater than the sum of its mm-hmm. parts the mm-hmm. whole is greater than the sum of its parts and it it really is like everybody can bring that their own thing and then that gestalt that happens is just well the hobby really (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's it's magic and it's um so i guess i'm gonna back now having put all that out i'm gonna back it down a little bit and say that um randomization in terms of, like, dice and tables and stuff is actually great training wheels for Mm -hmm. uh, players that are not either super comfortable with um, improvising whole cloth or uh, who just don't have the vocabulary or, like, um, mental structures that let them do that uh, yet. And, like, you know, as they build experience and skill in the art and craft of role playing, um, it becomes, the scaffolding becomes less and less necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a super great way of getting like new players in, like, again, Fiasco is really good at like setting up a, like a scenario and weird characters and all this fun stuff through randomization that like may be really difficult for, um, you know, Joe Random off the street to come in and start playing.
0: Right. right. And, and, you know, the uh, Fiasco uses essentially D66 tables to set up all their scenarios. Um, I prefer card based options. Now, I've approximated card based stuff by you know, using playing cards and lookup tables for, you know, Jack of Hearts is this. And, uh, and I just spent time today to mark up all the. Uh, uh, playing cards for a specific game uh, So that I don't have to look it up on tips. Um, I don't know what you you've worked with, but uh, what methods of um, the guiding tools for Players uh, what what methods have you found to be most convenient?
2: I'm a big fan. I, I really like going back to like go talking about questions. I think I think like if if you're going, you know, uh there was a, a LARP I wrote that was card based. You pick you pulled a card, and on that card it had five it had five or so questions, and those questions kind of guided you to a place to the place that I wanted you to be at, but let let you fill in the details. I think the idea of like pulling not necessarily a concrete like this is what is going to happen, but pulling rand pulling a random thing that says like tell me about this. What is this detail? It goes back to what you were saying, Kate, about like the idea of it being kind of a training wheels or a, a way to push you into this way of thinking is if you look at it is if you randomly draw something that asks you a question, it says like, okay, now you're going to bring in this detail that you're passionate about. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to guide you a little bit of the way I'm going to push you. I'm going to take you to the edge of the pool. You're going to dive in. And it like, I'm a big fan of, Something that pushes you to to have to think, okay, how do I answer this? What do I take from me that like brings something to the table along these lines?
1: Yeah, my my sort of um, go to like gateway drug to role playing uh, for new people that I try to introduce uh, to the hobby is uh, Avery Alder's The Quiet Year, um, because it is that that combination of like, here are cards, you draw a mm-hmm. card, you look it up in the table and it gives you a very specific prompts and you answer this question and you don't need to, you know, go into super depth if you don't want to mm-hmm. just give me an answer to this question and you will have built part of this world. Um, and I think that is a super great mechanic. Um, I also love the, um, dice and cards have a totally different sort of arc to the the -hmm. play where like dice are like "Mm, the probabilities are always going to be the same but like Mm -hmm. with cards as you draw that stack lower and lower the probability curve shifts until you get to like you know the sort of eventual inevitable conclusion of these are the only cards left uh, and that becomes this like great forcing function to get you to really interesting prompts.
0: Absolutely, yeah. They um, with perfect pitch, uh, like I said about the orthogonal stuff earlier. Um, I I've divided, essentially divided the deck into the four suits. Each of the four suits is a different, uh, different portion of the the game pitch that you have to describe. So for instance, um, you could have a, uh, what's the sample prompt? I'm trying to remember the sample prompt. Um, an obnoxiously cute uh, dating game about uh, magical architects. And those are the four mm-hmm. orthogonal aspects and ha- building out those, those four suits, you have very specifically, those four suits as separate decks Um, so it's a very controlled replacement however there's a fifth deck which is the answers Uh, and the other players are tasked with asking you questions about the game and the answers you give back to them have to be in these forms and there are eight of those And you go through all of them. So it's a very known progression. You know what kind of answers you're going to have to give, but you don't know when or to what question Mm -hmm. it's associated. So all of the variations come out. So to some degree, the randomization is there in terms of ordering, but not so much there in terms of content.
1: That's a that's a really interesting sort of um, look at things because uh, like the order of play uh, actually can really change up the way that you look at a specific situation or or problem. And so, like you know, let's say that you have to fight a dragon, right? Like if you have to describe the dragon first, um, and like describe the dragon's claws and breath weapons and whatever before you ever um, formulate your solution for fighting that dragon, that would give you a much different style of play than if you did it the other way around, right? If you say, okay, well, I know there's a dragon there. I'm going to throw a fireball at it. Well, it's a yeah. frost dragon, but that's okay. That's cool. Um, I, I really like that idea of like randomizing the uh, the order in which you engage your gameplay loop um, because, yeah, that's that's neat. That's something that we've been doing or I've been
2: working on with uh Mission Accomplished, which is the spy game, debriefing game that I've been working on. It okay. is it's um we've been it I originally it was very straightforward in terms of here's the scenario, now you're gonna make characters, now we're going to figure out like play through the scenario. It's like here's your characters, here's the scenario, we play through it. But uh I started really thinking about it in terms of playing a game out of order. Like right. it was
0: Did you run this, uh, did you run a playtest of this in the one-shot RPG Discord
2: at one point? Somebody else ran it for me, but yes. Yes, I played this. Good, you played the earliest version of it, which has changed dramatically, but you have a a core idea. (laughs) Um, So the premise has become, you start out by asking a bunch of of, uh, leading questions about like, tell me about the mission. What blew up during the mission? Like, what's the thing that exploded? Tell me about the villain's lair. And you have all these things. Then once we have that, we have to figure out how the players are. And then once we have all of this information, then you start think. then we start handing out index cards and saying, okay, now tell me what this person did and tell me what that person did. And it, it changes the way you think about it because it's no longer, well, I am the best person for this job. It's, well... I definitely wasn't the person that caused that explosion, so how do I make my character into the person that didn't blow this thing up? And it changes, It. it you're absolutely right, it changes the way that you think about it, just instead of saying, we're going to start here, it's we're going to start here and work our way back.
0: Yeah. Yeah, The um, it feels like uh, similar to uh, microscope, where you can take, you know, you've got that beginning era and that ending era, and then it's like, well, what's, there's a big question mark in the middle. Let's figure out where we want our story.
1: Yeah. Sketching in those, um, like if it, 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 it feels so much more empowering to go backwards and mm-hmm. be like, I'm going to retcon everything. I'm going to say that the reason that like they won this war was because they were all ghosts. Um, and like, instead of, Instead of having it be a sort of like declarative thing from the beginning, it then becomes this way of like reframing everything mm-hmm. that like just feels way more satisfying for some reason.
0: Yeah, because you, you you get it's it's like solving a puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have all these pieces that don't make any sense, and then all of a sudden you find this story that all everything just drops right into place, and then you have this crazy mosaic that looks like a dragon
2: i i think of it almost like editing a movie it's like you know you look at you film you film things in a certain order and then there's that moment where you can look at it and say oh this is what this is how it's gonna like fit together and it gives you like gives you the opportunity to look back and say oh this was a major undercurrent theme let's just go back and make this the thing that the story is about and like i love i absolutely love like when you have that moment of realization, and you can go back and say, "Oh yeah, X, Y, and Z happened because this is a story about hubris, or this is this is a love story. So of course these things happened in this order. That's what happens in a love story, and it's it's such a good, satisfying moment."
0: Absolutely, yeah. The um, I, I've done some filmmaking stuff, um, and for me, when I when I do short film production always build out that storyboard. Mm-hmm. That's nice linear process, like A follows B follows C. And then when you get to production and shooting, it's like this chaotic mess that's defined by time and locations and people's availability and the where the sun is in the sky and like all this all this mess. And then and then you have like this pile of crap. Mm-hmm that you have to assemble into something that moderately resembles what you have mm-hmm. in the storyboard and sometimes it ends up being what's in the storyboard sometimes you find a different story in the footage. footage and that finding that different story in the footage i think is what you're what kind of the experience you're describing is that that's kind of what role-playing games are it's like mm-hmm. you have these pieces, that's your footage, and you're building something that isn't what you set out to build you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a great metaphor um, because like if you treat collaborative sort of like randomized world building as an editing process, um, it becomes a lot clearer mm-hmm. what is possible and what like should be allowed. Like you shouldn't have to bring in every single second of footage you filmed right Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of it that's just not good or not good for the story that you're telling so like being able to to pick and choose these elements reorder them recontextualize them be like okay well we have a story about like sailing ships but mm, maybe they are like dream sailing ships or spaceships or whatever else that would better fit our story Mm -hmm. um that like process of of Figuring out where those cuts are—that um, uh, what is it, the Kulishov effect—the um, the like juxtaposition that creates meaning—I um, think is a really interesting way of of looking at this uh, world building process.
0: Absolutely, yeah. The I like that.
2: It, it reminds me because all things remind me uh i'm gonna go i'm gonna go down a tangent and everybody's just gonna have to follow me down this road for just a minute and then we can talk about other things but we're gonna talk about wrestling right now because (laughs) we're gonna talk about professional wrestling um it i wrestling is a larp and this reminds me of like how it is like it's the thing of like we know where we're going right you know where the you know how the match is booked you know (laughs) the ending to the match it's not but it's about how we get there and it's about how you take the audience reaction and how you take the fact that your ankle has been hurting. Cause you landed wrong last week. And if you take it and you go in these three directions and you tell this story and you find the details along the way you respond to the prompts that are given to you by the audience. If they start booing that guy, maybe that guy's got to start cheating. You don't know, but like it is this perfect thing of like, we don't know how we're going to get there. We know what the ending is. How we get there and how what the story becomes could take a million forms. All we have is that ending. Let's figure it out along
1: the way. I 100% agree with that. Like wrestling is such a undervalued um <laughs> storytelling medium uh that like, you know, uh Barthes uh like he wrote extensively about wrestling and how it is this beautiful play of morality mm-hmm. that like uh that i think a lot of role players could learn mm-hmm. from um if they weren't like
2: wrestling uh i thoroughly agree I, it is it is a thing that we should all be watching more of and i watch a lot of it already it's a thing that we should be watching more of but there's only so many hours in a day <laughs>
1: Um, but uh, like that actually kind of brings up uh, another question I had was that um, with wrestling, right? Like they structure it to have a very specific sort of arc that mm-hmm. that guarantees a sort of satisfying ending. Um, whereas like one of the dangers of randomized world building and randomized sort of narrative creation in general is that like sometimes you will not get a satisfying narrative arc unless you're basically like going all out to try to bend the characters and the story to fit something that will be satisfying. So like I guess how, how do you um, how do you deal with those situations where you're like hmm this feels like a dud I don't know if I I don't know if I can take it to it's like to stick the landing
0: mm. well what it, it makes me think of uh, the, the way fiasco handles it is that, it has that two act structure where you have the early game, which sort of sets up the scenarios and the relationships and the locations and and builds them out a little bit. So you have this cohesive world. And then there's the twist that like screws everything up Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of like your standard sort of three act, uh, narrative structure. You've got your characters, then the twist happens, and then you put your characters in the tree, and you chuck rocks at them, and then you're done, and you do the epilogue. the The epilogue in, in Fiasco is fairly minimal, but mm-hmm. you kind of uh, you, that's your that's your arc. Uh, it works for Fiasco uh, in terms of the structure it has because things when you start a game of Fiasco, like it's in the name, it's going to be a disaster. It's not going to work out well for like anyone. Um, But in terms of something else, like in, uh, in my game, Perfect Pitch, it doesn't always end up in a satisfying arc, but generally speaking, you end up with this idea for a game I work with video game developers, and I've tested the game a lot with them because they're around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and half the time, uh, I play the game and like, "Okay, we should just make this game now." <laughs> and I don't know. That feels like a satisfying
1: conclusion, mm-hmm. at
0: least. But it's not so much an arc; it's just ending on a high note.
2: There's a. Uh... There's a game called The Ward by Kevin Petker. It's a powered by the apocalypse game about medical drama. That one of the agendas in it is like keep, is share, seek, is something to the effect of like have secrets and share them openly. The idea that like, and I think that that is something that I've taken into a lot of other games along that note is like if I want a particular like big climactic reveal or something to really like wrap up a narrative. I think there's an understated, there's an, un, I think there's an underrated power in just saying, I really like halfway through a game and saying like, okay, look, I need this. I need this come up and come by the end of the game. Like mm-hmm. I need, my character has been lying and stealing from people this whole time. I need people. I need something to happen that gets me in trouble by the end of it. Uh, and I think there's, there's a, there's a view. Be- it's kind of that retroactive finding the theme after is like when you find it, when you, when you sort of hit on that moment where you go, Oh, I think this is what's happening. Saying it out loud and being, "Okay, now let's make sure that this happens, and like let's let's put the ending in place so that we can start working towards it." Because I think this might be what the story's about.
0: It's, it's like uh, the I can picture in my head the characters are setting up dominoes, but mm. in random places on the table. And then eventually, once you have enough of the story in place, all the dominoes are connected, and then it all falls down. Mm-hmm. But it's not this nice little line of dominoes. It's like one here, one mm-hmm. here, one here. And then everybody fills in all that holes, I think, visually, as you know. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that I may use that (laughs) uh, setting up those sort of scenarios that by the end of the game resolved uh, resolved. I,
1: I think there does need to be some sort of strong driving need for the characters, um, in order to, to get them to a place. And even if the world is, you know, random and changing at every act, um, like their core motivations still need to be the same. So mm-hmm. perhaps you know as as part of the sort of like world building aspect of things, like making sure that their core motivations still make sense in the context of the world, um, or finding those motivations after the world building is done, uh, I'm not entirely sure which is the preferable, uh, and maybe it depends very much on the game itself.
0: Yeah yeah the what, what are your thoughts on that jeff uh building motivations into the world building versus after
2: I think that i my my view of motivations like view of my big picture view of the world in games is always that like it only goes as far as the characters, and so I think that I think that's i think you're exactly right and i I agree that I think it's valuable to say like we can say whatever we want about the world, but if it does not come back to what these characters want, then we're just filling in a wiki page. Like it's, it always has to come back to, well, my character is greedy. So I have to be, I have to be thinking of this world in terms of things I want. And I have to be thinking of that in terms of like what I want that I can't have. And so for me, that in itself is sort of a, an inspiration point for world building is, well, the characters are going to drive everything, and the world is going to be filled in one character at a time because it's our story, right? Like we're the people that we're telling the story about. I'm not terribly like I, I think it can be interesting and it can be a source of inspiration, but like I care about what my character is after, and I care about what these four or five people, or one person, or whoever many people are at the table. I care about these people's motivations and how the world reflects that. Absolutely. Yeah, the... um, uh,
0: The fact that the characters uh, are viewing the world through their own particular lens and that we build the story of the group through these multiple lenses... Uh, really does characterize how we build the world
1: mm-hmm. in a way yeah.
0: that's relevant to the character.
1: Um, I I kind of built that, uh, that I used that sort of process in um, a game that I built uh, called The Underdogs, which is basically about like a little underdog sport team. Um, but uh, the playbooks are different archetypes. Uh, one is like the prodigy who's new to the sport and doesn't know anything about it. Um, And, like, each archetype has um, different world-building questions about the rival team uh, from their perspective. So, like, the prodigy would know, like, about the person on the other team that, like, feels the least um, comfortable in the sport but, like, loves it the most. And what is that person like? Or the person that, like, is, you know, the, the klutzy person on the team might know the other person on the team that, like, isn't confident. And so um, using the lens of the character, uh, you flesh out the world um, through that perspective. It's, it's a fun process. People enjoy it a lot because it really, it lets them focus um, in that character from their perspective and then kind of like paint the world with that. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: That's, that's great.
2: Yeah, um, Jeff, do you have anything to add there? Um, I don't. I think that sounds awesome. I don't have, I don't have anything to add to that. Beautiful. I kind of want to steal the
0: idea. But.
1: <laughs> You're welcome to it. I am share and chair alike. Uh, yes. The better, but, the, the more ideas but, that get out there, the better our hobby.
0: Yeah, I don't have a place for it to go, but I really like the idea. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, there's, uh, there's a, a
2: I had a point. I lost it. You're welcome. Um, characters' perspective matters, is what I is. I I think I, I think I've landed on what I want to add, and it's just that characters' perspective matters. Mm. If you know the idea that there's no objective truth, there's just what we all perceive it. That's that for me is world building. It's it's as much. We can say things are a certain way, but I'm way more interested in how this character perceives that thing being a certain way than I am saying objectively. Well, this is this way. We we accept this. It's okay, cool. What is what does my greedy character think about that? How does that relate back to them? That I think is really where great world building happens.
0: Well, that's that that uh, brings me to an interesting point. Uh, uh world building in terms of GMless games I guess or GM full games is very different uh, in world building where you, where you have a GM rule where you have that omnipotent being or at least theoretically omnipotent so I, I don't know as a GM I never think of anything I just make the, char- uh, the I just make the players do it and go along with it and make myself look smart Uh <laughs> but uh um how do you how do you mitigate that distinction especially in terms of the the two player podcast there jeff
2: i think it is that's a really good question and i think um i kind of think i think i think very similarly to the way you think where like if i am gming i'm just going to i'm going to it's that random, it's that random source of inspiration, right? It's I'm gonna take what my players are are giving me and I'm gonna roll with it and it's gonna seem like I have done a bunch of things. Or maybe I'll roll a dice and look at a table and say, oh, this is an interesting result, or something like that. Like I'm gonna you know, it's 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 for me the difference between It's for me the difference is between like where those ideas or where those ideas are coming from and who kind of takes ownership of it which is partially why I think I've been floating towards GM list games for a long time
1: uh, for me I think it depends on if you have the luxury of having a setup uh, session before mm-hmm. actually embarking on a game if you're playing a one shot that's GM then uh, you kind of just have to roll with whatever's at the table but if you're playing if you're planning a campaign that you know is gonna run like three four six, hundred sessions um, I think actually bringing in a sort of like cartography or anthropology game like quiet year or microscope um, into the first session with the players uh, like to help them like get invested in the world to to establish the those parts of reality um, i think that's a perfect sort of hand in glove fit um even if you are working in an established setting like um, you know d d or something uh, there's still a lot of that map that the players can draw in and giving them that opportunity uh, at the beginning and then like letting them fill in details as you play um i think that's a that's a good sort of blend of the the two styles mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. absolutely the I uh, um, I I have the I've looked at the microscope microscope explorer expansion where they explicitly have uh, uh, a section about using microscope as a world building adjunct to a campaign play, mm-hmm. um, and I've tried it uh, and. It, didn't really work out well for me. Like it got the players invested, but then the game changed then the world changed significantly during the first session. So a lot of that work that was done in early world building using the other game seemed wasted.
1: I think it's it's less of a like um you're you're not mapping the limits of the space you're identifying the areas that the players are interested in and so even if you end up building all these like npcs and weird conflicts and stuff um you can kind of like distill it down to oh actually my players seem to be really interested in clones for some reason so i'll just have more of that in my main campaign um it's it's a little deceitful I guess to be like mm, build all these things but maybe we won't use them but I will I will use my GM um, like uh, abilities to distill everything down into what I believe you care about mm-hmm. and then I will give you that pure flavor of the thing that you want without the extra trappings of like the weird stuff that maybe your little brother decided to throw in right Yes. I and and along
2: those lines like I am a big proponent if I have a session 0 I am a big proponent of just sitting down and being like what do we want to do? Like what what are the things or the themes or the things that like why this game? Why this moment? Why these players? Like what do you want? Like and I'll I'll be very upfront and be like look, I'm GMing this game. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Like and then I'll be upfront about like and these are this is these are the beats that I want to hit. This is the story that I want to tell. What stories do you want to tell? And like if somebody says, like, oh, I want to have my character fall in love, I'm like, cool, I can do, I can do that. That's great. That's up my alley. If somebody's like, oh, I want to explore this part of the world, I can be like, well then where game is set in this part of the world? Done. I'll figure, I'll I'll take your I will take your bits of inspiration and figure that and like blend them together and come with something that hopefully delivers on all of those promises. I think there's a value in just saying what do we want to do here like what's the story that we're telling that we're interested in telling and checking in periodically and saying like hey we've been playing this for a while do we have a different story that we want to tell like did we did we hit the beats that we want to hit where are we at now
1: often it's um i i find that uh some players have a difficult time articulating that up front uh until they actually get some sort of like investment in in the world or characters because they're like i don't know i i guess i want something with ninjas probably i guess i don't know but then if once you start describing oh like here's a here's a ninja clan and here's the line of succession and like oh there's a demon pack and they're like oh ninja mm. demon packs that's that's what i want um so like i, I find that playing to find out what the players mm-hmm. are interested in is actually uh, can be useful for certain types mm-hmm. of players. Again, it, it comes down to comfort level and skill, mm-hmm. and like really knowing as a as a player, like what your needs and desires are. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I, I I tend to play with relatively new players. I, I test uh, things with people that are like. Generally, if they're new to story games or family who don't, who's approached the story games is me saying, I made this new thing. Here, try this out. You must because you're related to me. So <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it works. Um, but uh, giving them uh, that creation through play definitely works uh, better for um people who are at least, at least a little invested uh have don't have the the um, time to go through say uh, source books or uh, setting books maybe discovery as a player as well as a character uh, can help that so one of the things that, uh We'd like to do with GM Party is we'll uh, talk about issues that have come up uh, with our recent products. We've kind of been talking about things we've been working on as we've been going, so we can tie those back in or just call it an episode. It's fine. But if there are any particular issues now that you have uh, a uh, a podcaster. And two game designers talking together right now. This is a good opportunity to say, hey, I got this thing that I need help with.
1: Uh, Sure. I'll launch in if uh, Jeff, you're okay. Feel free. So uh, I'm working on Kaiju Kiss, um, which, uh, you know, I've I've pitched it as a Kaiju dating RPG. Um, But that means a lot of different things to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, Some people see kaiju as like big, fun, fighty monsters. And like, it'd be fun to like have them go on like cute dates and it could be light and fun and nice. Um, But then there's also another side of it that's like, hey, like there are a lot of weird issues that come up with regards to like consent between monsters that can't really talk to each other super well. And what does it mean to like be uh, lovers in a world that, everyone else is trying to kill you. Uh, And like, it can dip into some heavy topics. So the problem that I've been having is like trying to find that right. Like, I actually think I might have to write two different games and I don't want to do that. Um, But I have to figure out like the audience I want to speak to and the, and the themes that I want to explore with the mechanics that I'm writing because like, one of my core philosophies is that um, mechanics are the message, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a very specific point of view with the way that you value certain things in your mechanics. And like, how do I make sure that the values in my mechanics line up with the story that I actually want to explore? Um, And so do you have any ideas on, on what happens when you want to tell two different two diametrically opposed stories
0: so, do you actually want to tell both of those forms of stories equally, or yeah. is it one of the four- that,
1: that's the problem? Is that like I want I want to do both, but I think I I don't know how to integrate them um, it, versus like actually maybe it's it's better to just separate these into two different experiences. Um, so I don't know. Do, do you ever run into that sort of like I have an idea I could take these two different forks and they would be two vastly different games? Um, what do you do when you when you hit that point? I have a
2: question for you actually. Um, have you ever read any of the paranoia games? I haven't. No. Because they actually touch on this exact thing, and I think they would be. I think that would be a valuable thing to look into okay. because, like. The premise of paranoia is, you know, you are all troubleshooters, you're in a bunker, there's a giant computer giving you missions, but that computer is malfunctioning, and it's this hu- huge dystopic society, and and the rulebooks actually go into this, because they're like, there are two very clear ways to play this game. There's, like, zap-pow-bam, where you are wacky, and you're getting orders that don't make sense, and everybody's against each other, and then you can actually engage with the fact that this is a horrible nightmare dystopia scenario, that, it, like no one should want to be in and like exploring the human misery that comes with that. And I know paranoia XP, which is the one before the one that was on Kickstarter was like upfront was like, Hey, there's two ways to do this. We're going to, as we explain things, we're going to highlight like this probably comes into play for this part of the game. But if you're trying it this way and they're just very upfront about like, you could want one of two things from this. And I'm going to describe a scenario and if you're looking at it this way, it's fun and it's cute and it's kissing. But if you're looking at it this way, it's tough and it's, you know, negotiating consent. And I think there's value in saying, in saying like, hey, there's two sides of a coin here. Here's the scenario. Here's how it looks from one perspective. Here's how it looks to the other. Depending on what you're looking for, this is my, like, wow, it might look. Mm.
1: Uh, yeah, I'll have to look into that because, yeah, that's that's exactly kind of the space I'm trying to navigate. Um, I, I mean, like, if you if you see the different ways people play Monster Hearts, mm-hmm. that's kind of the problem I want to solve a little bit. Because, mm-hmm. like, some of those mechanics are a little intense for casual play and, and vice versa. So, uh, like, I want to make sure that things line up um, in the way that I want them to line up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh,
0: yeah, the um, I, I I like the aspect of get, giving giving uh, multiple options in the same rulebook rather than having two separate products. Um, calling out it depends on how many how much mechanical change there is in the different aspects. Um, I don't know if there will be a lot, but having different call out bubbles or something that are color coded for the different game types might be a nice clear way of differentiating mm. uh, different aspects uh, of the game. But especially if you can have a core set of mechanics and then have variations yeah. on mechanics as you progress into the different flavors. Uh, that's something I did with Perfect Pitch is I have, I have a section of variant rules that vastly change the way the game is played. It's, it's this one goofy thing uh, where you're all collaborating together on a game now it's competitive and you're you know at each other's throats to make the best game and get the most funding it's it's very like have being able to capture those in one core set of mechanics I think is really hard mm-hmm having calling out those differences and variations i think is something that is acceptable to do as a designer
1: cool thanks
0: i, I don't so, if i would go to two separate products though.
2: yeah i think that i think that if you're just i think if you as the designer if you as the authorial voice are up front about like hey look that you could read this two different ways pick the one that you want to go with like I think that there. I think players will accept that and will run with that ball if you're if you're upfront about like this could mean different things to different people. Go with what you go in the direction you want to take it. And
0: I totally appreciated it in other products where they do that and they say, "I go into the game with a certain expectation, and then I read this, and it's like you can interpret this the way that you have been interpreting it." Or also this way, the way that somebody else might interpret it. They're like, oh yeah, wow, that's cool. I might do that sometime and then play the game the different way. And it's it's, all of a sudden there's like this added value of perspective.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. If somebody for Kaiju Kiss, like it's somebody who goes in and it's like, hey, it's a goofy rom com Godzilla romp through a city. Yay. Uh, and then read this, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's a that's a thing. Uh, we're gonna do that sometime. <laughs> yeah, that's actually cool.
2: So I have uh, something that I've been fiddling with with Mission Accomplished that I'm like I've been trying to tweak a dial, and I'm wondering if either of you have ideas on how to. Um, And I know you kind of touched on something that kind of relates to this a little bit earlier. I have been trying to mission accomplished is a semi-competitive role playing game. There is, it is a game in which players are competing because somebody is going to get a promotion by the end of this off meeting. Right. And somebody's probably going to get fired. Like, and so I've been trying to tweak with this idea of like getting players into a mindset, like striking a balance between having players there to have fun and tell a fun story. And like, laugh and be friendly while also getting it while also encouraging a certain level of cutthroatedness in play. Cause I think that's kind of, that's for me is kind of the sweet spot of the game is like, I I'm actively going to try and like sabotage your character, but I also don't want it to be a game that like, I don't want it to be Uno. That is a game that is a scourge on families and households across this great nation. Um, I, I want, and I'm wondering if you have ideas on how to get players positioned against each other in a way that does not feel like the player, like get characters against each other in a way that doesn't feel like the players are necessarily against each other.
0: Uh, do you have a way in the game where you can um, trade a short term advantage for a long term gain? Because. Or sorry, a short-term disadvantage for a long-term game. Not so, not not currently. If you have something like that, then the interaction between those, you can also reverse a, a short-term advantage for a long-term disadvantage. Um, you can have that one. That one's probably a little more fun for your case. Um, so you can have players get an advantage in the story right now, but ultimately screw themselves mm-hmm. in the long run. And it's like, it's, I find that players are more motivated by immediate gratification. So if you have immediate advantage and immediate disadvantage, you can have that cutthroatedness by players sort of Accidentally sabotaging themselves, uh, and then you don't have necessarily the that feeling that the sour grapes feeling of other players. It's like you know, Joe screwed me. Unless you, if that that can be also that's sort of mm-hmm. also what you were talking about. You want that sort of competitive backstabbing going on. I don't know. Mm-hmm
1: um i so i i kind of run into this in some of the games that i've had not competitive per se but like the sort of sour grapes feeling of like ah my character is not really like being included in things and that kind of sucks um and part of what i had to do was reframe the the game as a story about the story and not the characters like so instead of having the the Players, the players be super invested in their characters' motivations. It's really about like being invested in like having this story of wacky hijinks okay. uh, and like framing that at the beginning, saying that like you know maybe like maybe don't have them be exactly their characters per se, um, but like have them have them have a like larger perspective, maybe from an organizational level, um, because like. At some point, it really is like you're there to tell a fun story. Mm-hmm. You're you're there to be able to kill your darlings, and mm-hmm. like if you are too invested in your own character, um, you won't be able to tell the most interesting story because you won't want to kill your darling.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah
0: the that that's a good point. It's like the um, I was putting myself into the head of my own game for analogy, and it's it's about a video game. It's about Making a video game when you're being competitive, so it's not uh, not so much about winning the bid for for the video game. It's create. It's still about creating the most interesting video game, and the bid is kind of Conce- inconsequential. The competitiveness is secondary, but can be an element uh, in the variation of rules, um, but but like you said it's it's primarily about the thing you're creating together
1: i i think um what andy said earlier actually is is, could be an interesting thing to pull in um this idea of like hey let's let's jazz up this story that we're telling together by um i will give you a tool to screw my character over And that will be fun for the both of us because Mm -hmm. you get to play this thing and like really do something to me that like is real weird. But I gave it to you because like that is that is the story we're telling. That's the consent that I've Mm -hmm. given you to go buck wild.
2: I really like that. Actually, that is something I'm going to have to like really chew on is the idea of actively saying I am giving you I am I am offering up the tools of my undoing. And like having that, op- like I really, yeah, I really like that. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's great. All right. Um, so, in I guess it's my turn to talk about problems. Uh, so, yeah, the, um, um, I just took my game to a playtest. Took uh, Perfect Pitch to a playtest last week, um, and I ran through. And going through the playtest, um, I discover that it's not so much a gymless RPG anymore. It's more of an improv party game. So the entire perspective of the game has taken a 180, and now I'm building this much more casual game. And the issue I have now is that I can do a DIY style game where you can easily build it out using uh, playing cards. It's like you, you uh, all the hearts are this adjective and all the diamonds are this noun, whatever. Um, and have like this nice lookup table. Um, or the, the other option is, to do custom cards, or have both, as a, you know, here's here's the print and play version, make your own from playing cards, or just have a print and play version where you print up your own cards. I'm kind of, I'm fairly set on it being card-driven, but I'm not sure how far I wanna go with that. Like, do I wanna make it required for custom cards or not? Or, like, if the print play with playing cards is useful or not. I don't know. Opinions?
1: Not a bad problem to have, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, the... Um, I guess it depends on how much you want to invest in it. Uh, like, if you want to eventually go down the line of having it be sold in boxes in retail stores, then I think it definitely makes sense to go more the, the like, printed... Print and play custom card type uh, route. But if you just want this to be a light thing that people can carry a PDF and a pl- uh, pack of cards around um, and just play randomly at cons, you know, with their friends, whenever, then um, that's a, I think that's a perfectly good thing too. Um, I guess, wh- where do you see it?
0: Um, I think keeping a small pack of cards, custom cards, would be my ideal um yeah so that if you could have like like a ordinary playing deck size cards not even a double deck just keep that around all the time i literally walk around with a playing deck all the time even before i started working on this game um you never know when you need need to play a game of euchre right um but uh Uh, having that around with the rules and like a slip-in piece of paper would be my ideal. But whether or not somebody prints those rules up themselves and puts them in a playing card case or I have a custom one, I don't know. Uh, I do like the aspect of not having to produce things myself I guess even with custom cards, I could use drive-through cards, um, but it's nice to be able to just ship a PDF. <laughs> it's simple.
2: I I am a huge proponent of print and play. I, I basically like card games, board game, like anything that has a print and play, I, I go in on a print and play because I don't have a lot of space for board games and I don't have a lot of, sp- you know, my space is at a premium and I like offering, I like being, you know, Knowing when I'm gonna play a game, printing out that game when it's there, and then to recycling it when it's done. That said, like I I have anecdotal evidence, which we all know is the one is the most accurate form of evidence. <laughs> but um, I I have a lot of friends who play a lot of improvie party games, a lot of you know card based party games, and I know that the ones that even the ones that go in on print and play will generally go for the one game, go for party games that will let them print and play like official looking cards onto paper that then they can paste onto the, that either they can just hand out the paper slips or like paste them onto index cards or something rather than like having to write things on an existing deck of cards. So I think if you were going for, I would say go print and like print and play is my, I would advise for print and play whether or not you have a physical edition after that
1: right because i
2: think for a lot of people that's a very valid option Mm -hmm. but i'd say like if you're if you're if you're if you're even thinking about custom cards i think it's a it's worth looking into and saying like what do i want this thing to look like you know because it card design art design art direction those things convey a lot to the player and I think that's a real that's a valuable area to explore. I've said I've said I think that's a valuable X like seven times in this interview. I think I've said that phrase more in the last hour than I have maybe ever in my life. <laughs> well, it's it, I
0: think it's a valuable thing to say. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I definitely agree uh, with everything that Jeff just said. I think um, print and play is is a great like first step, um, and then like. I think eventually it the game that you described seems like it could be very accessible and and fun for a lot of people that normally wouldn't play any sort of like, you know, story games or RPGs. You know, just having it for sale in like a bookstore or something Mm -hmm. would just be a a very easy way for people to be able to access it. And like having a, a custom deck of cards is, you know, that's. That's a f- easy, fun thing to pick up, put in a stocking, give to someone as a gift.
2: For sure, absolutely. I, that's exactly how I feel. It's like, you know, if it uh, a party game like that, that's that is an easy thing for me to take to my families for Christmas and just play, and we'll have a great Christmas. Do you want me to not have a great Christmas, Andy? Is that <laughs> what this is? I'll send you a version.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I'm convinced. But uh, is it, so, I guess I was under the impression that print and play for cards was a little bit more effort than most people were willing to put in, but Jeff, you're, you're saying that that's not you've really case?
2: No, I have seen, uh, I have a lot of friends who do a lot of print and play games, and they will absolutely go in and print out the cards, and... Just have I have I have a lot of friends who will just have big stacks of like printer paper card games that they're like okay cool we're gonna play Super Fight or whatever and they just deal out their little paper slips and it's in like a Ziploc bag and it's just a thing that they have and they add expansions to it when print and play expansions come out and cool. I I have a lot like I don't think that's too much to ask of a player as well. Especially if you then also have a physical option that says like, "Hey, if you don't want, you can do it this way. You can do it that way. It's up to you." Cool.
0: Well, I guess I'm going to have to do some tooling and make a layout generator for playing cards because I don't do anything manual.
1: From from a sort of like um, gameplay perspective, it's also less uh, friction than having to go to a lookup table. Um, Totally. So I think, just from a, a player perspective, I think that's a that's a better uh, experience.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's why I, I I took a sharpie and scribbled all over this deck so I could, uh, you know, to have like these kinds of nice prompts. <laughs> for uh, th- that proper improv feel <laughs> Yeah okay cool uh, I think we're, we're about wrapped up uh, does anybody have any other topics that they would like to bring up? I don't think so I think that's pretty much a wrap okay let's let's just do do a round table and uh, um, people can say where people can find their stuff uh, start with Kate.
1: Sure, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Army of Meat, uh, and then um, you can find my terrible blog uh, where I'm doing all my games at kaijukiss.com. Uh, I will have more there. I swear, it's just a blogger page right now, but it'll be better. I swear. Cool,
2: Jeff. Uh, partyofonepodcast.com, allmyfantasychildren.com. You can find me on Twitter at Party of One Pod and yeah, that's it. Uh, I'll have some stuff about mission accomplished that you can find eventually. Cool. Follow me on Twitter, and I'll tweet out a link because I'm Twitter trash, and that's how you find. That's how I. That's how I convey things to the world.
0: Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I am also Twitter trash. You can find me at Andy Burdan. Uh, the show Twitter page is at Game Make Game Maker Party. The YouTube page is uh, YouTube.com/slash. Well, just search for GM Party. It's really that's the easiest way. Uh, And uh, if you like the show, uh, of course, uh, check out Patreon.com/slash GM Party. We have a page up there. Uh, It's fairly low activity, but uh, it's up there. Um, Oh, and my uh, board gaming or tabletop gaming stuff is available at Birdandy.com. My two names kind of squished together. Um, Anyway, we'll uh, call episode 103 a wrap. Uh, Thank you both. Thanks so
1: much. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely.